Uh, it's good to be back with you again and uh, to continue our studies in 2 Corinthians. So if you'd like to um, just uh, tap your Bible and swipe through to 2 Corinthians or whatever you do with the Bible. Um, and we're going to be uh, just following on from where we were last week. So uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 from verse 5 to verse 11. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11. And um, just as you've turned that up uh, or clicked appropriately, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, confess our need, acknowledge gladly our need of your spirit to give us understanding of your word, uh, not just to understand the words on the page, though that, Lord, sometimes would be a major breakthrough, uh, but, Lord, to, to hear to have ears to hear, to hear with our hearts, with our wills, to yield to the impress of your truth, and so to show forth Christ. Right, we pray, uh, the Son of Grace upon our hearts. We do also just want to pray for David as he uh, goes over to the province and as he debates uh, with this atheist whom you made and whom you made for your glory. And we ask, Lord, that you would give to uh, our brother protection from the evil one. And we ask, Father, that he might discover how you have gone ahead of him. And we thank you that uh, he is not going into a situation that is uh, somehow or another um, off limits for you. We thank you that you have already been at work in the hearts of all 450 or more who might gather there. And all, Lord, who will uh, watch or listen to it, um, assuming, Lord, that these tapes won't be lost mysteriously. Father, we ask that the work of your gospel will prosper through that debate. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. So let's read together 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11. Uh, you remember that Paul is uh, writing to a church that has been uh, in no small measure turned against him so that it might be turned against his gospel and might be therefore more susceptible to the kind of Judaizing alternative um, that had been preached by others who came into Corinth um, and who exploited the sort of factions that were already there. Um, uh, Satan has uh, usually enough material to work with um, when, he, uh, when he gets into a fellowship. And uh, so what we're looking at in this passage is how Paul wants them to deal with the problem. Uh, and the problem here, as, as, in, as in many situations, um, focuses on a particular individual or a small number of individuals. And, and uh, so the question, therefore, um, is how do you relate um, in that context? If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me, 
as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Amen and may God help us to understand. Um, So the problem um, within Corinth towards Paul and his gospel seems to have involved um, the the work, uh, the disruptive work of a particular individual. Uh, now, it, it just happens like that in churches. It usually takes a relatively small number of people in a congregation to derail things. Um, and uh, very often, the majority are left kind of bewildered as to what's going on. If, if you think of it as, as uh, being like a bath, uh, the, the, the sort of surface area of the, of the plug hole is not very big compared to the surface area of the bath itself. But once that little vortex has got set up, then by hook or by crook, it's going to suck all the water out of the bath. Now, there was a bath plug in Corinth, it would seem, about one person wide. And uh, it threatened to drain everything, the life, out of the fellowship, unless something was done. Now, in those circumstances, what would you do? Um, There is a natural human tendency to want to graciously and lovingly take that brother or sister outside to the church car park and minister to them um, in a memorable way. Uh, Or you might want to to call down fire and brimstone upon them. Um, Or you might want to kind of publicly sacrifice them. This is what we're supposed to do. So if anyone has caused you grief, let him... uh, Five and six. Here is the situation. Now, that's the first section. Second section, seven through nine. Um, what you're supposed to do: the reaffirming of the love. Third section, ten and eleven. Three hundred and sixty degree grace, grace all round. So um, we, we can tell that it's supposed to be a sermon because it's got three parts to it. Um, this is a subtle biblical clue, um, and. Uh, in the Greek, I'm sure, there are, there you can find three words uh, that begin with the same letter or something like that. But first section, five and six, what the situation is, really, what the situation is. Um, and then seven through nine, what you're supposed to do about it. And 10 and 11, make sure that it, you've got 360 degree grace all around the place. So, let's have a look at the situation. Somebody has caused grief. Um, now, we use that word. Oh, yeah, it's really giving me grief. Um, and we use the word in that sort of sense almost lightly. Um, but this is real grief. Somebody has really, really, like, it's like they've killed off bits of the life of the fellowship. 
uh, their liveliness in the gospel, uh, their grasp of the apostolic message, their impact upon the city of Corinth, their sense of fellowship together and with Paul. These things have been slowly kind of killed off by the stirring of the factions, by the diversion from the true gospel, by the animosity towards Paul, the picking on his weaknesses, the manufacturing of weaknesses, the turning of personality traits into weaknesses, all that kind of stuff. So real grief has been caused, upset, pain, loss. Now, all that has been directed at Paul, but Paul um, is big enough to recognize it and not take it personally. Well, is he big enough? I don't know if size is actually the quality that we're looking at. He is perceptive enough to see that there is more going on than what's involved him personally. Now that's important. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that Paul is not approaching the whole question of grace um, and forgiveness in the way that we attempted to do it when we think that we are being gracious but actually we're not when we're actually just being either cowardly or self-deceptive or plain British. Because what we tend to do is deny that an offense has been caused. Oh, no, 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 really, no, 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 that's fine. No problem, no problem. When there was a problem. And actually we have felt a problem. And basically, we just lie through our teeth, which is immensely problematic. Um, Because then whatever flows isn't really grace, is it? Because grace is in in the face of hurt and offense. Grace is the love you show, which has been demerited, actively demerited. So just pretending that nothing's, nothing's you know, hurt you, you, whatever follows isn't grace and has no forgiveness in it and isn't godly. For God tells us that we have offended him even when we would tell ourselves that we haven't. So we do what Bonhoeffer described as cheap grace. That is the grace we show ourselves. And it's cheap because we try and minimize any real sense of offense. And therefore, what flows costs us nothing. And grace is always costly. Not to the recipient, but to the giver. Which is why we have a cross. So Paul acknowledges, look, if anyone has caused grief, it's a rhetorical if, of course they have, cause grief. He has grieved me, but it's not so much that he's just grieved me, he's grieved everyone to some extent. Not to put it too severely. So he acknowledges that offense has been caused to him, but it's not just to him. So he's not saying, hey, it really didn't bother me at all. It did. He's saying, actually, it was worse than that. Because he didn't just offend me. He's he's grieved all of you. He's robbed all of you 
of some of the joy and the unity and the faith and the assurance that flow not just from the gospel itself, but the fellowship that he, Paul, and the Corinthian church enjoyed in that gospel. So verse 5 actually sets up a situation that really is serious. Paul is fronting up the fact that somebody has done something really bad. And it hasn't just hurt him. It's, gonna, it's had a devastating effect right through the whole fellowship. There has been, and there always is in, the Christian, in any Christian fellowship, there has been collateral damage. And it's had a consequence. And the consequence is that everybody has turned against him. Verse 6, people have felt the pain, uh, they've felt the hurt, they've seen the damage, and what's behind verse 6 only really makes sense of verse 6 if we see something like people turning on the guy. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, um, the, the, the punishment there doesn't really um, sort of evoke the idea of um, a sort of... Um, we, we, we hope everything's okay, Chris. We'll just remember. <laughs> um, doesn't just evoke, you know, uh, a kind of church discipline procedure. Um, or Paul would use the, 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 the language of discipline. It's punishment. You've, you've just made the guy suffer. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, what, what picture has Paul described for us in, in, in verses 5 and 6? Um, he's described a congregation where um, people have uh, been robbed of what they've had. They've turned on the person who's done it. They've inflicted a punishment upon that person. It may be a social kind of punishment. It may be verbal. It can take all sorts of forms in a Christian church, subtle or sometimes not very subtle. So you've got one person now who has become what? Has become the scapegoat. Because it wasn't actually just one person that was causing all the problems. 2 Corinthians is written to a whole fellowship. So what's happened is one person has become identified as the focal point of the animosity towards Paul... And that person, uh, their, their effect has been recognized and people have done the typical thing that happens in a large group. They have dumped their responsibility for either sharing in it when it was going on or not stopping it when it was go going on. They've dumped all their responsibility on this one person. So the majority have inflicted a punishment on this person when we know from the background that many, many people in the congregation were involved in this problem. The problem of rejecting Paul and rejecting his gospel and going with the Judaizers and splitting into factions. Some of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas, the really, the really holy Joe ones. Well, I'm of Jesus. Yeah. So everybody has been involved in this. One person who definitely was has been the scapegoat for everybody. Now, he wasn't innocent. Paul isn't saying he was innocent. Either of hurt towards Paul or impact on everybody else. 
but what are you going to do about it now? And so into seven and nine, seven, um, uh, sorry, seven through nine, yeah, as to, to what to do about it. So there's been a period when it has been intensely uncomfortable for this one person, he, singular, uh, in verse five, him, singular, verse six. There's been a period of, of this sort of woe being inflicted upon him. What are you going to do? You've got to stop. Now, instead, from now on, you've got to do something different. What's happened is sufficient. You know, enough's enough, guys. Now you've got to do something different. You cannot just do that. You cannot do that and think you've done okay. Because to do okay requires more than just acknowledging the offense caused, feeling it, and all the rest, and then going and doing something about it in terms of well, in this case, inflicting punishment. There's got to be something that's got to go somewhere beyond retribution. And always in the Christian church, always in any fellowship, when there has been a problem and it's revolved around one or a few people and that problem has come to light... And everybody has felt the impact. And maybe even joined in or been complicit or not tried to stop it. You've got to ask the question, where are we actually going to go with this? What's going to go beyond the meltdown, the fellowship near meltdown that we get to at the end of verse 6. Well, here's where you take it. Now, from now on, you've got to forgive. And um, Paul uh, urges upon them these three things. They're all sort of working together. First of all, forgiveness. Second, comfort. And third, the reaffirmation of love. Forgiveness, the giving of comfort, and the reaffirmation of love. And, and this is just, if you like, a roadmap for every congregation, for every Christian, when things have gone wrong. Where you're going to go with it, once you've done the acknowledgement that wrong has been done, and you've felt the pain and the grief, and you've let it be known, and you know whatever the, the punishment is going to involve... You've got to go beyond that. You've got to have a goal beyond getting your own back. In fact, that should never be your goal. And these are the three things that take you beyond all that. Forgiveness, comfort, and reaffirmation of love. So, um, amazingly, you've got to show grace You've got to show to somebody who has offended you exactly what God has shown to you, you who have offended him. So you've got to be godly in this because God did not simply um, wait to inflict punishment on us for our sin. So what God has shown you and me is forgiveness, which is amazing, isn't it? Because forgiveness requires that you have a determination in your heart that you do not want to let separation be ultimate. 
it requires that you are prepared to lay down your offense. It requires that you um, do not occupy a self-reassuring and possibly even proud moral high ground. To forgive does not make you superior. To forgive does not in one sense mean that you surrender justice. But it means that you have to be prepared. You have to want to say, I'm not going to hold it against you. It's in the past. I'm not going to revisit it. I'm not going to bring it up again in six months' time. I'm not going to keep on reminding myself of it. And I'm not going to keep on reminding you of it. It's gone. It's gone. And that's what grace does. That's the grace that every one of us in this room this evening absolutely relies upon. Because we're God to raise again one single sin. A real, true sin. We would be finished. It is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. If God did not want in his heart to put away our sin, to cover it with an atoning cover, to have it removed as an offense between us, to have it exchanged for righteousness in a reconciliation. If God did not want to put an end to all my sin, I wouldn't stand a chance. I wouldn't stand a chance. But God does. And solely because he wanted to, because nobody can make him do what he doesn't want to do. So he only ever does what he wants to do. And everything he does is what he wants to do. He forgave. And since grace costs the giver, he paid the price. So if the church in Corinth is really going to understand the apostolic gospel, it's not going to demonstrate that it understands it by ticking all the boxes on a theological questionnaire. It's not going to demonstrate that it understands the apostolic gospel by learning all the gospel lingo and all the jargon of the day. It's not going to show it understands it by sticking the word gospel in front of everything. So you have gospel churches and gospel seats, gospel decorating. It's only going to show that it understands the apostolic gospel by doing the gospel within its own walls. Now instead, you ought to forgive. And forgiving, you've got something else to do. So you can't just say, okay, I forgive you, that's it. 
mm, I've forgiven you. Because you've pulverized the guy. And what has happened in Corinth is that um, the, the attitude of everybody, the majority, has, if you like, it's done the trick. The guy has seen what he's done. And this is a Christian in whom the Spirit of God resides. And something true has happened. He has truly seen what he's done. And a true response has occurred. He feels sorrow for his sin. Now, do you notice the language that Paul is using? It's funeral language, it's grief, it's bereavement language. Grief, sorrow. Something has died here. It can, it can be resurrected. And this guy is going to be overwhelmed. By excessive sorrow. Excessive sorrow. What, what's excessive sorrow? Well, excess is, is more than is needed. There is a sorrow for offense that has been caused. There is a sorrow that you feel for what you've done. He's running through Job 31. Did you notice as we were reading it? There is a sorrow for sin. There is an excessive sorrow that can be visited upon a person. That's the sorrow, in this case, of rejection. And there should be no sorrow like that in the Christian church. Because there shouldn't be rejection. So you ought to forgive him. That's it. Done. Not going to revisit it. And we're going to pick you up. Now we've come across this word comfort already. If you may remember a few weeks ago, um, we were looking at the way Paul describes um, what God does for him so that he might do it to others back in chapter 1, verse 3. Um, let me read to you from chapter 1, 3 following. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we may can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. He goes on. Now if you were here that um, Sunday evening, you remember that we were just taking note of what the Greek word for comfort actually involves. Uh, paraclesis. You get alongside somebody and you strengthen them with your strength. They're about to collapse, so you put your arm around. You may remember um, that, that um, uh, David came up here and, and uh, uh, very sort of gamely um, took part in a stunning drama that was um, rehearsed uh, a lot in advance and every detail of which had been carefully worked out. Um, and you, 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 somebody's about to fall, you get alongside, you prop them up, and they walk on, having no strength of their own, 
because of your strength. And Paul's saying, that's, that's how God is with us. He comforts us. We have no strength of our own. Our strength is gone. God gives us his strength, come with thought, by drawing alongside so he's with us and fortifying us. So sometimes comforting people, in fact, more frequently than not, Christian comfort is not the sort of there, there, pat on the back, sympathize, agree with everything that are complaining, that kind of thing. It's not sort of indulgent thing like that. It's a very fortifying thing. It's quite a bracing thing, is Christian comfort. It's actually got some metal to it because you're not saying, hey, I know you're exhausted, sit down there give up it's saying come on let's get going again this is the comfort of the of the rowing coach who's pedaling alongside on the towpath yelling at the poor crew who are about to expire with exhaustion to keep going and he's still calling out the rhythm that they've got to keep to even though Every muscle and sinew is aching and their lungs are going to burst. And they think they're about to die and at least throw up over each other. And he's comforting them. Not what we normally mean by the word comfort. And Paul says, forgive him. And then pick him up. And... Put your arms around him figuratively and let him move on with you. So that he's not crushed by a sorrow that would be excessive. The Spirit of God gives us sorrow for sin. The Spirit of God gives us the assurance of the absolute, complete, and final forgiveness of sin. The Spirit of God is the comforter. I urge you, therefore, third thing, to reaffirm your love for him. Now, if you're going to do that, if you're going to forgive, comfort, and reaffirm, what have you got to do? You've got to get down off one of the most satisfying places that there is in life. And that is the moral high ground. You've got to get off it. How are you going to get off the moral high ground when actually you've got it? (laughs) How? Well, uh, because you're going to be obedient. Verse 9, another reason I wrote to you, that is the letter that went with Titus from Troas, explaining that Paul wasn't going to go there. Uh, He refers to it in the next verses. I wanted to write to you to see if you would be obedient. Obedient to what? Obedient to God. Obedient to what you've been shown. You see, not one of us, however wronged we are, and it can in Christian circles be quite a delicious thing to be wronged, can't it? Because it does give you some moral high ground. It does give you the grounds with which to put a few people down. 
and reaffirm to yourself your own superiority. Pander to your pride. The way that you get off the moral high ground, the way that you never want to occupy as a Christian, is because you know that you could say with Paul, not I was the chief of sinners, but I am. If, if you can recognize with Paul that the good you would do, you don't do, and the very things you don't want to do, you do. If you could recognize with Paul, a la Romans chapter 7, that you are wretched. If you recognize with Paul that you have absolutely no leverage with God whatsoever, but that you actually need rescuing from yourself as well as his wrath. If you need delivering from your own sin habit. I don't mean habitual sins. I mean just the sin habit completely. If you don't recognize that, you haven't really understood the gospel. You haven't really got grace. The reason why these people in Corinth ought to forgive and comfort and are urged, therefore, to reaffirm their love, that is, to put away the offense, to protect and strengthen the one who has offended them, And to show love so that they know that they're loved is that's exactly what God has been like with all of us. We are all, all of us, only what we are by grace. None of us can ever really occupy any moral high ground. Because we are all sinners saved by grace and only by grace. The only righteousness any of us will ever have is the righteousness of Christ. We will never ever be able to say, I've generated some of my own. There's all that from Jesus and see what I've done too. There is only ever a righteousness that is from God. Romans 3.21, Paul uses the same phrase again in Philippians chapter 3, about verse 9. There is only, the only righteousness there is, is Christ's righteousness imputed to us and progressively imparted to us. There is never, ever any room for any self-righteousness. So when we are grieved by another, all we're getting, all we're getting in that feeling of indignation, in that feeling of being grieved, in that feeling of being treated unjustly, in that feeling of being, you know, whatever, mouthed about or whatever, all we are getting is one tiny, tiny little whiff of what we have done to God. That's all. And look how he has treated us. He who has 
forgiven us and daily comforts us and hour by hour reaffirms his love for us. Love covers a multitude of sins. We, we, it's very easy for us to lose this in the Christian uh, faith and in the church. It's very easy for us to start subtly and slowly um, amassing self-righteousness. And we can use all sorts of things to do that uh, for us. And the thing that we do most is we do our religion. Um, and uh, the, the, the most insidious and effective diversion from the gospel is something that looks like the gospel. You know, the best counterfeit is not monopoly money. Um, but something that is really, really close to the original. That's the most convincing counterfeit. Um, so if you, if you just sort of you know, hand over some Monopoly money at the shop, um, you, you, you won't even be taken seriously as a crook. Um, but if, if you go and scan in a five-pound note, because people aren't worried about fivers these days, are they? Um, if you go and scan in a five-pound note, uh, on your, you have to do both sides, just to remember to do that. Um, <laughs> And double-side the printing, choose that option, and choose the right, you know, paper that's kind of convincing, and muck it around a bit in your, in, you know, dip it in the water and pull it out, that kind of thing, um, as long as it's waterproof ink. And, you know, just sort of make it look old. You might be able to use that. It's got to be close. And, of course, the closest thing to real, live, vibrant Christianity is, is good, vibrant religion. The biggest problem facing the churches that Paul and his, and his companions planted wasn't gross, obvious sin. I mean, that was there. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. The biggest problem was religion. And so it is for us. The biggest diversion from living by the gospel is our religion. Well, I turn up a lot. I do a lot. I'm always there. The place would fall apart without me. I really love these songs. I know all the latest and the old ones. I'm the first person who's ever sung Brenton Brown metrically. I know my, backward, my Bible upside down, backwards, the whole lot. Hebrew, Greek, even English. We just amass religious points. And the religion isn't wrong. It's what we do with it by way of self-justification. And you know you've got a problem with that if you start occupying moral high ground and find it difficult to relinquish, relinquish your superior position if you start becoming aware of other people's faults and failings, if you start becoming critical in your spirit, if you start manufacturing faults, you know then that you're making an idol out of your religion and you've stopped living by grace. And then when you're offended... Let me read to you 
uh, from uh, this is from um, Valley of Vision, um, which if you haven't read, I strongly recommend you put on your Christmas list for someone to get for you, or buy yourself a second-hand copy for one penny plus two ninety-eight post and package from you know where. This is from the grace of the cross. O my Savior, I thank thee from the depths of my being for thy wondrous grace and love in bearing my sin in thine own body on the tree. May thy cross be to me as a tree that sweetens my bitter maras, as the rod that blossoms with life and beauty, as the brazen serpent that calls forth the look of faith. By thy cross crucify my every sin. Use it to increase my intimacy with thyself. Make it the ground of all my comfort, the liveliness of all my duties, the sum of all thy gospel promises, the comfort of all my afflictions, the vigor of my love, thankfulness, graces, the very essence of my religion. And by it give me that rest without rest, the rest of ceaseless praise. What it is to live by grace. To know that you have to and can forgive somebody because you've been forgiven. But this grace has to be all round, verses 10 and 11. It has to be 360 degrees. So Paul says, look, you've got to forgive this guy. Um, he has done you all damage. He's grieved all of you to some extent. And um, you've, you've done the sort of, you know, you've visited wrath upon him and all the rest of it. Now you've got to forgive him and comfort him and reaffirm your love for him. He's, you've got to pick him up again and get moving together. And then there's himself in this. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven... If there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. What's he on about? Well, he's on about grace as a weapon of war. Grace as a weapon of war. See, if if Paul isn't going to forgive this guy in Corinth, then there are going to be people who Paul is saying, you know, you've got to forgive him. We're going to do one of two things. They're either going to say, well, why should we forgive him, Paul, if you haven't? Or they're going to say, well, you know, there's still a problem. Okay, we've forgiven him. You know, but Paul is still hurting. Paul is still grieved. Paul is still injured. So even though we forgive you, we're still going to visit vicariously Paul's wrath upon you. And the situation is not going to get any better. In fact, it will get worse. So for the forgiveness to be complete, 360 degrees, all the way around, wherever you face this forgiveness, Paul says that before Christ and for your sakes... I also forgive him. There's no, there's nowhere for the resentful flesh, 
There's nowhere for the self-justifying, proud, moral high ground flesh to go to grab a still live accusation and inflict it upon the guy. Everywhere you look, around you in Corinth, amongst one another, or to me, everywhere you look, the offense is gone. And there is forgiveness. Why? Because if we leave one little landing pad of unforgiveness, Satan will land on it. If not tomorrow, next week, next year, it will be brought up again. If everybody doesn't let go, Satan will still get in. And he's very cunning. We are not unaware of his schemes. So in the spiritual warfare that is the norm is not picture language in the New Testament. It's what it actually is. It's not a metaphor. It's the reality. In the spiritual warfare that goes on within a congregation against the enemy, not against one another, there has to be grace as the ultimate weapon of war. The only thing that's going to nuke Satan is grace. God's grace. Because that's what's nuked him in your life. The reason why you can face the accuser and not be crushed is because your Savior died and rose again for you. Because grace has been extended to you. So you've got to show it to one another. And Paul is going to show it. Grace as a weapon of war. Now, um, I don't know the undercurrents within St. Peter's Free Church. Um, you would be the only church ever in the history of the entire church around the globe if there weren't any undercurrents. So, you know, it's just real. Okay, it's just like it is for everybody. David has not been filling me in on you all. Some of you, yes, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You know, because I knew it anyway. Um, be aware of Satan's schemes. And the thing that will always bring him down, the thing that he has no answer to, the thing that disarmed him, the thing that will finally kill him off, is grace. If you want to be strong as a fellowship in the work of the gospel, you've got to be strong as a fellowship with the gospel in your hearts and with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us alert to the evil one. We pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, to 
So receive your grace day by day that we live in it and we show it. Forgive us when we have delighted to occupy moral high ground. Forgive us when a part of us has been secretly satisfied that we have been offended. Forgive, Lord, our warped and twisted weakness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.